Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Ireland as a country and its kind of history is something that a lot of people feel, um, well in Britain especially, I think they very much feel, you know, it's a foreign country despite being kind of right next to it. I think that a lot of people might, especially Marxists who might, you know, feel like they know more about the Russian Revolution and about the German Revolution than they do about the Irish uh, Revolution despite it being so uh, so geographically close and so kind of politically uh, intermingled as well um, when it comes to kind of 20th century uh, history and earlier. And yeah, I definitely recommend Alan's book, Ireland, Republicanism and Revolution. Um, it gives, I guess, a much kind of longer view of Irish history than I'm going to give here, which is about kind of just the uh, period in the early 20th century. Um, and the kind of development of the, you know, these, all of these ideas um, are about, you know, Irish Republicanism and obviously the uh, uh, development of a kind of Marxist um, uh, tendency in Ireland as well. Um, so, I mean, Ireland uh, is known as Britain's oldest colony, um, I think, to, to many people, um, for good reasons. I mean, it was one of the first countries that was conquered by, um, you know, members of the British ruling class. Um, and it faced hundreds of years, really, of conquest and of exploitation uh, and of repression at the hands of, uh, of British kind of colonists and imperialists. Um, and it was always held in a state of colonial underdevelopment. You know, uh, Ireland was, and still is really in a lot of ways, a largely agricultural society, um, just kind of uh, forced really to feed uh, Britain's own industrial revolution, um, allowing absentee landlords, um, you know, based in, in England or in Scotland um, to grow fat, you know, off the sweated labour of uh, Irish peasants. Um, and this colonial oppression, of course, produced, you know, numerous atrocities. It's a long and bloody history. Which we'll not get into in too much detail. Um, I think it's enough to say, you know, Lenin, he commented once that uh, the exploitation of the Irish peasantry um, showed the depths of cruelty to which uh, even the liberal bourgeois would go um, in their kind of colonial expansions and conquests. Um, you know, the greatest and most famous, I suppose, of these atrocities uh, was the Great Irish Famine of 1845 to 1849. You know, millions of people died were emigrated, you know, they left Ireland, um, producing this you know, big Irish diaspora that exists uh, around the world. Um, and, you know, Ireland's population is still not recovered from that uh, famine, in fact. You know, population studies think that um, uh, Ireland's population where we probably won't recover from, you know, the, the famine in the 1840s until about 2050, so about 200 years later, really. Um, shows how, how devastating, really, it was. Um, and of course, as well as this uh, this history of oppression, which is you know, quite ugly, Ireland also has a long history um, uh, of rebellion and resistance. You know, as a result of this oppression, you know, producing uh, national uh, or aspirations for national freedom um, and self determination in Ireland. You know, it's kind of I guess famous. But it's got this is definitely a kind of a, a, a famous aesthetic anyway of Ireland as this kind of rebellious country anyway. Um, you know, there were revolutionary democratic uprisings in 1798 and 1848 and other years, 
you know, often inspired by uh, the bourgeois revolutions of Europe. Um, and, you know, these movements were, of course, often led by bourgeois and kind of and petty bourgeois uh, Democrats. Um, you know, there were reformist, um, sort of constitutionalist organizations formed out of this uh, kind of national liberation movement, like the Irish Parliamentary Party, that after the 1801 Act of Union, they sought to achieve uh, home rule for Ireland, um, similar to there's a movement in Scotland as well, um, you know, which essentially was just advocating you know, the re-establishment of, uh, of an Irish parliament. Um, you know, these people, the Irish Parliamentary Party, they were purely bourgeois kind of nationalists. They just wanted their share uh, of the profits you know, being squeezed um, from Irish workers and uh, poor farmers. And there was obviously as well a more, more radical uh, petty bourgeois tendency as well, like the secret underground uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood, you know, known as uh, the Fenians as well. Obviously today the word is mostly offensive, but that's what they were known as uh, at the time. Um, and they, you know, as the name suggests, were Republicans. They sought to establish an independent Irish Republic. You know, they were often uh, inspired by you know, the kind of uh, the radical left wing of like the French Revolution, you know, Jacobins. Um, people like August Blanqui and things like that. Um, and Marx and Engels, you know, they commented uh, in their time on the Fenians, you know, uh, in the era of the, the first international. Um, you know, they condemned, for example, the public execution of uh, Fenians in Manchester, uh, the Manchester Martyrs of 1867. Um, and it was an important kind of issue for them. They came to understand that the solution to the national question in Ireland um, this Irish problem, as it was referred to by the ruling class in Britain, um, it was a necessary part or you know, prerequisite for the proletarian revolution in Britain. Um, they understood that as long as Ireland was held in chains and the British workers could never be free, uh, that national oppression would always be a reactionary bulwark against uh, class solidarity. Um, so this forms you know, part of the, the Marxist position on the national question up to today. Um, the, you, that the social liberation of the working class and the national liberation of oppressed peoples are uh, you know, fundamentally uh, intertwined. Um, and that's why, Mar as Marxists, you know, we stand for the slogan of the right of nations to self-determination. You know, this is a, a democratic demand um, that can only be guaranteed, uh, we think, on the basis of international socialism. Um, and it was through uh, his own direct experience of the bourgeois revolutions of Europe uh, in 1848 that Marx discovered you know, the reactionary, deeply reactionary nature of the bourgeoisie, even in these national, uh, uh, nationally oppressed countries. You know, they're so tied to the wealth and privilege of the old regime. Um, and they so feared you know, unleashing the revolutionary energies of uh, the working class, this new class in society, um, that they uh, you know, could not even lead uh, a bourgeois, you know, the bourgeoisie could not even lead a bourgeois democratic revolution to its own conclusion. Um, and it's from this you know, experience uh, that Marx would coin the term permanent revolution, which is one that's very important for us when we study Ireland. You know, permanent revolution is of course a theory that was uh, subsequently developed by Leon Trotsky. Um, it's a theory that you know, ascribes the leading role in the national liberation um, or bourgeois democratic movement to the working class um, as the only consistently revolutionary class um, who in the process of completing the tasks of uh, the bourgeois democratic revolution, you know, they realize the necessity of adopting proletarian socialist uh, you know, tasks. Um, for us, this theory of permanent revolution you know, has been confirmed by history 
um, in a positive sense by the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, but importantly for this session, uh, I think in a negative sense by the Irish Revolution, because as we'll see, um, the bourgeois leaders of the Irish Revolution, they betrayed the Irish Revolution. Um, the Irish working class um, and the Irish labor movement you know, played only an auxiliary role to uh, the bourgeois nationalists and Republicans. Um, without their own proletarian revolutionary leadership, um, the working class, uh, the, the prospect for social revolution in Ireland uh, was lost. I think that's what the main kind of point we're gonna try and bring out um, today. So the Easter Rising uh, of 1916 is probably the most famous um, example of, you know, uh, Ireland's, you know, uh, rebellion and, and trying to achieve independence. Um, it was the spark which, you know, lit the fires really of this Irish revolutionary period. Um, and the event itself, I think people will uh, maybe have some familiarity with it. But, you know, the Irish volunteers, a kind of armed group, nationalist group, um, and the Irish Citizens Army, they attempted to provoke a general uprising against the British in Ireland by staging an insurrection um, in many of its kind of towns and cities. Um, it was in Dublin where the main fighting took place, um, where members of the Irish Volunteers and the Citizens Army, they read out the famous uh, proclamation of the Irish Republic, which you know, declared Ireland a free country, um, uh, independent from Britain. Um, and they read, read that outside you know, the General Post Office, very famous kind of uh, image, <clears throat> and they fought British troops for control of the streets uh, in Dublin. Uh, now, the Irish Citizens Army is a bit more interesting to us as Marxists, because it was um, not just an armed nationalist group like the volunteers were, but it was the armed wing of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, uh, a trade union. Um, and it's sometimes called you know, the world's first uh, Red Army or the world's first Red Guard, the first instance of a, um, uh, an armed kind of body of workers, you know, to be a member of the ICA, you had to be a member of a trade union, you had to pay your kind of dues and so on. Um, and they were formed for this express purpose of you know, defending workers. You know, both the, the union and the, the citizens army, they were formed in the Titanic class battles in the period before 1914, so a little bit before the 1916 Easter Rising. Um, you know, with the uh, 1907 Belfast Dockers strike, which is you know, broadened out to be a, a general strike. Uh, and the 1913 Dublin lockout as well. Um, and in this lockout, which was an attempt to uh, destroy the, the transport union, the ITGW, uh, workers you know, were killed um, in baton charges by the Dublin Metropolitan Police. You know, there are instances of drunken police officers you know, going from house to house, beating people up, um, attacking picket lines and so on. Uh, and in response to this, the, uh, the union you know, said they needed to, to arm themselves uh, and, you know, they were uh, organized into military units to protect uh, strikers, essentially. Um, and I guess uh, a shadow of maybe things to come, uh, you know, bourgeois nationalists like Arthur Griffiths, who headed the Sinn Féin party, which was a tiny obscure party at this point, um, they actually opposed the workers in the lockouts. The, um, they sided with the bosses. They uh, argued that, you know, that the, the, the union was some kind of British plot to destroy Irish industry, you know, um, kind of a ridiculous idea. Um, and it was James Connolly, you know, Ireland's perhaps most famous revolutionary, uh, Marxist at least, um, who had come to lead the, uh, the Irish Citizens Army uh, and be the main military commander uh, in Dublin on the day, uh, well, in the few days of fighting in Easter 1916. Um, 
and laid many of the, the plans for the uprising as well. Um, the uprising itself was brutally crushed and um, wasn't successful. You know, the rebels were vastly outnumbered uh, and like gunned. Um, the British army, you know, shelled, destroyed the entire city centre of Dublin, which the, the volunteers, um, they didn't uh, expect them to do. Um, you know, Dublin at this time was, you know, one of the, the great kind of colonial capitals like Liverpool or, or Glasgow, um, or well, in British imperial capitals, I guess. Um, you know, the destruction of the city centre of Dublin was so great, um, nothing like it had in fact been seen. This is in the middle of World War II, World War One, of course, but nothing like it had been seen since the Napoleonic Wars and the destruction of Moscow or, uh, or Copenhagen. Um, and thousands of civilians were killed um, in the crossfire of uh, British machine guns. It was a huge um, uh, you know, disaster, really. Um, a blunder on behalf of the British, as well as a, you know, a field uprising on behalf of the, uh, the insurrectionists. Um, but you know, the failure of the uprising was not just due to the uh, kind of poor planning or anything necessarily. It was largely due to the fact that uh, most, of, um, most of the Irish volunteer troops, uh, most of their, their actions had been called off. You know, they were supposed to parade on Easter morning all throughout the country, uh, and then you know this uh, declaration would be read out, and they would uh, you know seize control of all the kind of major places uh, in the country. But there was a countermanding, countermanding order, you know, issued at the kind of eleventh hour by Owen O'Neill, one of the heads of the Irish Volunteers, which meant that um, uh, only a minority of the the available forces kind of turned out. Um, and importantly for us, when it comes to Marxist analysing an insurrection of this type. Um, there was no uh, general uprising you know, provoked by this um, because of, you know, what we'd say was a, a kind of premature social situation. You know, the, uh, the period before 1914 was one of, like I mentioned, those kind of big, uh, you know, bloody kind of class struggles. But that kind of was cut across by the, the, the beginning of the First World War uh, in 1914. You know, it was Lenin uh, who commented, you know, Lenin and Trotsky, they both defended um, the Easter Rising uh, against you know, certain Marxists like Plekhanov and so on, who said it was just a putsch and, you know, it was just a ridiculous kind of nationalist uh, attempt at some sort of coup. Um, they said it was a heroic episode. Um, and Lenin, he commented, you know, that the, the misfortune of the Irish was that they have risen prematurely when the European revolt of the proletariat has not yet matured. Um, you know, James Connolly, he insisted on it. However, you know, he felt the urgency of trying to stop the war. You know, he took the, uh, as you know, uh, a minority of uh, Marxists in the world did. Um, he took the, the, the declarations of the Second International and the Workers' Parties before the First World War seriously. This plan that they said, you know, if there was going to be a war, then there should be a, a European-wide European uprising of the working class to, to stop the war. And in Lenin's words, you know, transform the, the imperialist predatory war into a civil war of, uh, you know, class against class. And that was kind of Connolly's perspective, I think, for the, uh, for the Easter Rising in trying to do that. You know, he wanted to stop the war um, and importantly to prevent the introduction of conscription in Ireland as well, which uh, would have been a disaster for, uh, for the Irish working class. Um, and the nationalists, they took part because, you know, I think some of the nationalist leaders, they had this uh, romantic idea of sacrificing themselves um, to set an example uh, as previous kind of rebellions in 1798 and 1848 had done. <clears throat> this uh, crisis, however, uh, it, the kind of international crisis, um, this European revolt of the proletariat, as Lenin called it, 
would mature, of course, by 1917 with the outbreak of the Russian Revolution. Um, it's rapid kind of spread around Europe to Germany and other places. Um, and it was this that you know really brought the First World War to an end, as you know they had kind of predicted. Um, and in Ireland, uh, revolutionary republicanism um, it you know leapt from being this minority underground tendency to being a, a mass movement. In fact, you know people were shocked by the brutality of the executions, the arrests, uh, the internment of thousands of people following uh, Easter 1916. Um, you know, as many as it has many times throughout history, uh, the whip of reaction drove revolution forward. Because um, you know, one at a time, in fact, day after day, and reported in the press, you know, the leaders of 1916 were all executed, uh, with the, ex the exception of, uh, of Eamon de Valera. And Connolly himself, um, he was so badly injured in the rising that he could not even stand to face a firing squad. So instead, he was lashed to a chair and shot, which evoked um, a lot of sympathy for him amongst the Irish public. So the change in the situation really was, was apparent uh, after the 1918 general election in which Sinn Féin um, you know, swept the board, despite even many of its candidates still being uh, interned uh, in prison camps in Wales and other places. Um, you know, Sinn Féin actually had nothing to do with the Easter Rising um, and you know, historically weren't even a Republican party, um, but they were so heavily vilified by the press that their public profile increased dramatically. Um, and the leaders of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who you know, had planned the Easter Rising, um, they you know, took over the party and it, uh, it became their kind of political vehicle, it became a kind of uh, a mass kind of uh, Republican party. You know, the Irish Parliamentary Party that I mentioned before, these kind of bourgeois constitutional nationalists, they were completely smashed by the election. People didn't forget how their leader, uh, John Redmond, had supported the war and encouraged Irish people to volunteer to um, fight in the British Army, you know which had completely split the uh, nationalist movement. But importantly for us, um, Irish Labour, there was a Labour Party in Ireland at this point, uh, which had been founded in fact by James Connolly, um, they did not even contest the election in December 1918. Um, you know, after the death of Connolly, um, it meant a kind of loss of leadership for the, uh, the Irish Labour movement and the Labour Party, uh, much in the same way, you know, after the death of, uh, you know, Rosa Luxemburg or Karl Liebknecht in Germany led to a kind of a dearth of, of revolutionary leadership. Um, you know, the Labour Party, under people like Johnson, they adopted uh, an opportunist position when it was advocated by Sinn Féin, and uh, it was known as Labour must wait. So this idea that, you know, the working class uh, needs to be subordinate to the nationalist leaders, that Labour issues about, you know, jobs, poverty, things like that, all needs to be postponed until after, you know, Ireland has been freed from uh, British uh, rule. Um, and in practice, as we'll see, this meant opposing the independent uh, revolutionary action of the working class. Um, so, I mean, on the 23rd of April, 1918, there was a, a general strike declared throughout Ireland. You know, every town big enough to have a trades council held a demonstration. Uh, hundreds of thousands of workers who had never even been on strike took part. Um, you know, the Times commented that um, Irish Labour had found its strength uh, after viewing this, this, how solid the strike was. Um, and it was evident from 1918 onwards uh, that it had. You know, the number of strikes uh, doubled in 1918 versus 1917. There were 20 new branches formed a month for the Irish Transport and Generals Workers Union versus two a month in 1917. You know, the union had over 70,000 members by the end of 1918 versus less than 5,000 at the time of the Easter Rising. 
um, and there was unrest among workers and poor farmers all throughout the country, you know, from land seizures in Clare to occupied coal mines in County Leitrim. Um, but despite all this, despite this you know, opportune situation for Labour, um, the Irish Labour leaders, they stood aside in the December election, as I already mentioned, um, and the general strike that year in April um, was officially only about protesting uh, conscription. Um, of course, the Labour movement opposed this, and it should, but uh, the Republican kind of leadership, which the uh, Irish Labour Party subordinated itself to, tried to restrict the strike just to, to those demands about conscription. Um, it's the following year. Uh, it's the following year in 1919 um, that marks you know, the beginning of the Irish War of Independence and the kind of real beginning of this revolutionary period. Uh, you know, the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Volunteers they merged to form the you know, Irish Republican Army, the IRA, and they began their guerrilla war targeting you know, the Royal Irish Constabulary in the countryside. Um, I assume everyone has kind of heard a little, at least a little bit about this campaign. It's obviously one of the most kind of uh, famous elements of Ireland's revolution. You know, the flying columns, Michael Collins' active service unit, um, the debris of terrorism ordered by Winston Churchill uh, in the form of the Black and Sands and so on. And um, while many, you know, legends have been written about this uh, guerrilla campaign, it obviously played a significant part in liberating Ireland. Um, the real thing that brought the British Empire to its needs was not uh, the IRA, but in fact, the Irish working class that made the entire country just ungovernable um, for the British uh, administration. So in January 1919, Sinn Féin MPs, they gathered to form a provisional revolutionary government um, called the First Dáil, the Dáil Éireann. You know, it affirmed the Easter proclamation, um, issued a, an appeal to governments of the world for recognition. Um, you know, at the time the Paris Peace Conference was going on after the First World War. Um, and in a kind of a reciprocal favour to the Labour Party for standing aside in the December election, which meant the Labour had no actual representatives in the first doll, um, they passed, you know, the democratic programme, which, you know, contained policies like the nationalisation of land, of uh, natural resources, state education, the alleviation of poverty and so on. However, Sinn Féin didn't really take these policies uh, seriously. They didn't issue any revolutionary decrees to implement them. Um, they didn't put any money towards them. Um, and most uh, Dole members didn't even read the programme before voting for it. Um, and it was redrafted at the last minute to, uh, to remove some of its more socialist uh, elements. Um, it was a really just an affirmation of the Labour must wait policy. Um, you know, these things were for after Ireland was uh, freed from Britain. Um, despite this policy, however, um, the working class would not sit on the sidelines um, while the IRA you know, fought to expel British forces. Um, also in January 1919, uh, a general strike took over Belfast for several weeks. You know, it started as a strike in the shipyards, it broadened out to include other industries, um, and when railway workers, who were you know, some of the most best organised workers, you know, threatened to join it, um, it was clear that the strike committee was uh, completely in control of the city. Uh, something that they weren't entirely comfortable with. Uh, the Lord Mayor of Belfast, you know, he said as much that he, he had lost control of the of the city. Um, and, you know, reactionary unionists, they called them their loyal subjects uh, to stand guard against Bolshevism uh, in the city. The Manchester Guardian, in fact, even called it a Soviet. Um, and this term, obviously coming from the Russian Revolution, would be adopted consciously by Irish workers in April. 
1919 in the famous episode uh, of the Limerick Soviet, which has been revived somewhat in recent years. It was very well covered um, at the time in the press. Um, and it's a kind of a, an interesting episode. So in Limerick, 14,000 workers um, and their families, you know, most of the town's 38,000 population, they demonstrated against British militarism. Um, you know, it was a political strike against the imposition of a draconian militarized police state in their town where workers had to get, you know, special passes to go to work and so on. Um, you know, during the strike workers, they took over the food supply of the town. You know, they uh, expropriated grain from Canadian, um, uh, Canadian ships. Um, and, you know, bakery workers who took over their workplaces, they inscribed on the walls, uh, you know, this was the workers' Soviet mills. We make bread, not profits. Uh, and when the town began to run out of money, um, the strike committee even printed their own currency to try and uh, to pay for everything. So the town, you know, in Limerick, it was completely defiant. You know, the police were unable to control the situation. They were unable to get reinforcements even because the country was overrun by uh, disturbances, as they called it. Um, this heroic episode, however, it ended um, in an unpopular compromise, um, mainly because of a lack of, of outside support, either from the revolutionary government, the Dolaren, or from the, the labor movement. You know, the labor leaders, they refused to call a general strike across the whole country to support the Soviets, despite the fact that there was a risk of you know, it being uh, besieged and, and you know, starved out, essentially. Um, and they were unwilling you know, to take the initiative from Sinn Féin uh, and from the, you know, the revolutionary, the, the Dol who, um, in fact, they kind of opposed the Soviets. You know, they didn't want these kind of independent, spontaneous um, working class uprisings happening, you know, um, and rather than, you know, what it was, which was, you know, a citywide strike where the workers were in power, um, you know, they portrayed the movement as an Irish town that was besieged by British forces. And they even absurdly put together this plan to evacuate the town. I mean, can you imagine like a strike happening and then proposing to you know, evacuate the picket lines or something? Um, and the strike was eventually ended uh, through negotiations that were facilitated by the local Catholic bishop, um, which enraged many workers. They tore down posters and stuff that declared the strike was over, um, but they were all had to go back to work. Um, and another kind of episode of uh, betrayal like this, you know, followed a year later in 1920, there was another solid national strike all throughout the country, um, which was about uh, protesting and trying to get the release of uh, Republican hunger strikers. Yeah, the Manchester Guardian, again, it commented that uh, it was no exaggeration to trace a flavour of proletarian dictatorship in the strike movement. You know, with the aims of the strike uh, limited, however, just to you know, hunger strikers by Sinn Féin and by the Labour leaders, um, you know, the strike was again called off once the, uh, the hunger strikers were released uh, from Mountjoy prison. Um, and in the kind of microcosm of, of this, uh, outside that prison, um, there was an enormous crowd, um, but they were, who threatened to, you know, storm the gates. There was a rumor going around that they were going to steal a tank and crash it through the gates. They were fraternizing with the British soldiers who were hesitating, um, but they were all kind of convinced to leave uh, and to go home by a group of you know, Sinn Féin politicians um, and Catholic priests as well. Um, so there are countless other examples really, um, smaller ones throughout the country of workers taking action against British militarism and imperialism. Um, but this whole you know, period 
of unrest, um, this being a revolutionary period, this revolutionary crisis in Ireland uh, was limited really because of this lack of a real revolutionary proletarian leadership. Um, the greatest betrayal of, of the Irish Revolution, however, um, and would, one that would directly lead to reaction and the end of this revolutionary period um, came with the acceptance of the partition of Ireland in 1921. It's, it's breaking up into uh, North and South. So for centuries, the British ruling class had laid the basis of sectarian division in Ireland, you know, Catholic versus Protestant, uh, in a classic kind of divide and conquer tactic. Um, something, you know, they, they, they practiced in Ireland and have used in all other kind of uh, colonial uh, projects throughout the world. Um, you know, many times throughout Irish history in the period we've just covered in the pre-1914 period and others, you know, the working class uh, stood, you know, united against this division conscious of its own class interest versus this uh, divisive interest based on the, on creed. Um, and in order to permanently seemingly uh, break this unity and cement sectarianism into Ireland, you know, the imperialists, they proposed to the Dáil uh, a peace treaty in 1921, um, which created two semi-colonial states, essentially, one in the north and one in the south, um, and this is the situation territorially that uh, you know, remains today with Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic. Um, you know, this treaty proposal that split the nationalists, they had no real kind of uh, uh, response to it, um, into pro-treaty and anti-treaty sides, um, which uh, led to you know, uh, the Irish Civil War in the kind of 1930s. Um, but uh, in reality, you know, despite this kind of civil war, uh, both sides were actually willing to accept partition, at least as a temporary kind of thing. Um, and these two you know, halves of the Republican movement, um, the pro-treaty and anti-treaty, um, they formed you know, the two civil war parties that still exist to this day, Ferrofall and Fine Gael, you know, who you know, supposedly oppose each other um, but you know, in, if in our, they form the current government of Ireland actually today, they're, they're in coalition with each other. They're the two kind of parties, the two halves of the Irish ruling class really. You know, Fianna Fáil, a bit more of a, an economically nationalist and inward kind of looking um, wing, whereas uh, Fine Gael represents more the, uh, the wing of the Irish bourgeoisie. It's directly dependent on um, you know, the British Empire and on, and on uh, foreign capital. 30 minutes gone. Um, so decades before, you know, this acceptance of partition, you know, James Connolly, he had warned that the partition of Ireland would lead to what he called a carnival of reaction. Um, and it was proven correct, really. You know, the Northern Irish state um, was immediately in one, one in which uh, Catholics were oppressed as second-class citizens, you know, with extreme property qualifications to vote. The entire borders of the state, in fact, were drawn up so as to ensure that the Catholic population was a permanent uh, minority and could never really exercise any democratic um, uh, you know, power in the state. Um, and all this, of course, laid the basis really for the troubles later in the 20th century. Um, and in the South, where the Irish Free State was formed, um, later just renamed to the Republic, um, you know, there was a reaction against, uh, against labor and the trade unions, you know, breaking up of strikes um, of trade unions um, you know, treaty membership went down. Um, and most notably, especially after, you know, the anti-treaty side, uh, Fianna, you know, Fianna Fáil, led by Eamon de Valera, once they entered government, um, the Catholic Church was uh, included, you know, constitutionally in the country's uh, education and healthcare system, something which the original you know, founders of the state never really envisaged. Um, 
and you know this has led to many uh, many you know atrocities kind of since with the mother and baby homes and so on um and you know emily mentioned this recently this kind of huge sort of progressive movement in in irish society against catholic church control um against the the social power that the catholic church wields in ireland um on behalf of the ruling class on behalf of the bourgeoisie um those in the Republican and Labour movements who were close to James Connolly's ideas at the time. And, you know, they warned against the acceptance of partition and the uh, Anglo-Irish Treaty. Um, but the Labour Party and trade union leaders, they took essentially an ambivalent approach, which was just uh, viewed by most people as a de facto support for it. Um, and thus um, Ireland's revolution, um, this revolutionary period of 1918 to sort of 1921, um, it was cut short really. Um, by the betrayals, I think, of these bourgeois nationalists um, and the kind of opportunist labor leaders. Um, had there been a, a Bolshevik party, for example, in Ireland um, uh, in this period, um, it could have, I think, turned out very differently. You know, by putting, following a kind of Marxist uh, policy of putting no trust in the so-called national bourgeoisie, um, who in the epoch of imperialism are ultimately tied to the interests of imperialism, um, and pushing the working class to the forefront of the struggle for national and social liberation, as James Connolly envisioned, Ireland could have formed uh, a worker's state, or you know at least helped form one, um, uh, and you know provoke a revolution in Britain, perhaps, you know which could have uh, you know helped break the isolation of the Russian worker's state. Um, that didn't come to pass, however, um, and a much uglier history uh, I think followed. From 1921 but uh, despite that I think there are many lessons um, for us to take for future struggles um, and I hope uh, everyone feels enthused to, to study a bit more about Irish history um, and about the, uh, the struggle for independence. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net and if you're able to please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.